Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This week we're speaking with uh, Dr. Stephen Greer, who many of you probably know. You've heard him on our show a couple of times before. Let's start today, Dr. Greer, by talking about the Orion Project. Could you give us a setup about what this is about for people who haven't heard of it? Well, the OrionProject.org is a nonprofit research and development group uh, institute that has a goal of uh, raising $3 million to put the uh, scientists that we have identified who understand uh, real alternative energy solutions under one roof and come out with a, a robust new form of electromagnetic generator that would be able to replace the current uses of the internal combustion engine and oil and gas. Uh, we know that this is possible. We've researched this for about 18 years and have uh, people both inside government and in the corporate world who have confirmed these sorts of systems. And we have identified some scientists, some of whom have worked in corporate and government programs, who understand these sorts of technologies. And we feel it's time for the public to understand that this can be done and that we need to do a, a really serious attempt to professionalize the research on new energy that goes beyond just wind and solar. Question I would have, I guess, to start with here is why aren't we seeing the government do this right now, knowing the seriousness of the energy crisis, the fact that gas prices now are horrendous, particularly if you have a vehicle that isn't terribly fuel efficient, why aren't they doing things today to resolve this? They just talk. Well, which government? I mean, you know, there, there's, as Senator Inouye said, there's a secret government with its own funding mechanism, its own Air Force, its own Navy, its own intelligence gathering operation. Uh, that entity wants to keep these systems secret because it, it ensures that the entire world is dependent on a centralized financial and energy system, which uh, the type of energy systems we're talking about would extract energy from the so-called zero-point energy field or quantum vacuum flux field that's in the space all around us. It's estimated that every cubic centimeter of space that's in the room where you're sitting has enough energy to run the Earth for a day if it could be tapped, and we know it can be and has been all the way from the time of Tesla and Stubblefield in 1908. So the folks who are in the mainstream government, uh, when they begin to step into this sort of an area, there are folks who surface who either threaten them or point out to them that they would be challenging the primacy of a $300 trillion asset and financial base known as oil, gas, and coal. And that kind of money talks. And we're not talking billions here. We're talking trillions. And so it's about, it's about corruption. And, you know, all the, with all the yak going on in the political sphere about, you know, a change in, in Washington, uh, frankly, I'll believe it when I see it. We actually had briefed Senator Edwards' team on this issue. We're waiting to, to get to Barack Obama's group. But the, the issue, as I see it, is that uh, who's going to do the heavy lifting on this? And here's a little inconvenient truth, is that we personally briefed Vice President Al Gore's science advisor and his team 
as well as President Clinton and Hillary Clinton back in the 90s on this issue. Uh, Lawrence Rockefeller hosted the Clintons at the uh, JY Ranch out in uh, Wyoming, and I had put together about a 600-page briefing document called The Best Available Evidence that went into this whole issue, not just the so-called UFO issue, but the issues surrounding these energy systems, which obviously are the propulsion and energy drive systems behind these mysterious people, things that people call UFOs. But yet they wouldn't do anything about it. Uh, and in fact, the briefing was stopped by Hillary Clinton because she said, no, we don't want to hear any more about this. And, and in fact, what we found is that the political class who are very much emboldened uh, I should say, beholden to the financial interest and the corporate interests that run the planet, uh, really don't want to bite the hand that's feeding them. It remains to be seen whether whether Mr. McCain or Mr. Obama would actually do anything about it. I have not found a single member of the Senate or Congress, and I have met with many of them personally face-to-face, who have had the courage to take on this issue. So what I've concluded is that we the people need to do it, and if the people will lead, maybe the leaders will follow. And I think that we have been very successful with Disclosure and the Disclosure Project, which has now become a worldwide movement, has led to the government of France releasing 100,000 pages of previously classified documents from their space agency and the recent release of the British government of Ministry of Defense document and other movements around the world along these lines. The real issue is how are we going to survive as a civilization burning oil and coal? Well, we can't. And so whether or not there are anyone uh, in, in these government circles who will take on this issue remains to be seen. I think we need to use our own resources. We have certainly identified scientists and physicists and engineers who understand the physics behind these systems and who I think need really a, in, in the world of R&D, where you spend $100 million to get a new blue pill out that'll make your penis erect, I think that we're talking $3 million to develop an entirely new industry to replace oil and gas and coal, and we can do it because we're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants who've worked in this area for the last hundred years in many cases. Uh, you know, this is not something new. There have been electromagnetic generation systems that have been so-called free energy systems for the better part of the last hundred years. What we have to do is recognize that this is a very valid area of science, that it has got to get professionalized, and that when you put these people under one roof, you're going to see some magic happen pretty quickly. I think within 12 to 24 months, we would have the first generation of these systems out robust enough to at least be running people's homes off the grid and generating multiple kilowatts of, of electric power. I don't think you're going to be able to do it without that level of support because there are too many technical hurdles to cross. Uh, one of the problems with this whole area is that it's been amateur. People have experimented with these things in their basements and garages with a thousand here and a few hundred thousand there. No one person can tackle all the technical and engineering hurdles of doing this. I mean, Lockheed Skunk Works has, but they've been using hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money to study this stuff. I think it's time for that we the people do, and that's why the OrionProject.org begun as a nonprofit that anyone on the planet can make a contribution to to build up this research fund so that we can fund these inventors and these engineers and get this whole issue properly supported. 
Uh, we now have committed around half a million dollars towards our $3 million goal, and we hope we can raise the rest of it fairly soon. What makes you think that the powers that be, even if individuals come up with this research, aren't going to act against it? And the reason I ask that is because I've just been reading Stanton Friedman's new book, Flying Saucers and Science, which covers the scientific premise of various things related to UFOs. And as a matter of fact, we'll be interviewing Stanton Friedman next week. Now, one of the chapters he writes talks about the fact that he was involved in a lot of research in the 1950s and 60s with regard to using nuclear energy for propulsion systems, which would be certainly a lot more efficient than using chemical rockets, for example. So we're not talking about zero-point energy here. We're talking about a technology that would not appear to be as advanced. Just about every one of his projects was canceled. Now, well, were those projects canceled because of the fact that they really had nowhere to go, or was it because someone out there said, gee, we don't want those particular projects to succeed for some reason? Well, there are several reasons, and we've heard this story from many people. First of all, a nuclear propulsion system is really a very primitive thing. Uh, remember, nuclear is 40s. We're talking 1940s uh, with uh, Hiroshima. So the technologies that uh, had been developed by the 50s, the so-called flying saw of the 50s and 60s, many of them, uh, while there were some that were extraterrestrial in origin, many of them were actually made by Lockheed and uh, Lockheed Skunk Works and uh, other corporations working on this problem. What you find, however, is that the highly compartmented nature of this, the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand is doing, but once a project gets a certain amount of development in it, someone will come along and pull the plug on it. And I'll give you an example of something that happened very recently. Uh, I'm working with a scientist who was under contract, a physicist, who to develop an anti-gravity propulsion and lift system for the Department of Defense, and the facility that funded him was not tied into these other so-called black projects. Once they found out that these folks actually had discovered the Rosetta Stone of how to do that properly, all the way down to the mathematical equations, the colonel, who I personally know and have met with, was ordered to defund the project, not because it didn't work, but because it did work. This project was then replicated at a very prestigious laboratory, in fact, the largest Department of Defense laboratory in Washington, D.C., the head of which is a man that I know personally who is currently uh, there as a Ph.D. scientist. They reproduced this system, had things floating and flying around a hangar there. This is recently. But when their bosses found out that they were doing that and it replicated, they had all their funding pulled and were told, don't pursue this any further. So at this point, this technology is sitting in this man's head, and he's willing to come on our team and reproduce it for us privately. But it's also sitting in a vault in Washington. I know precisely to where it is. So, yes, this happens all the time. And I think that if you look at Nick Cook, who's a, a writer for James Defense Weekly, one of the most prestigious defense journals in the world, if not the most, and he's the one who wrote the, the Race to Zero Point and, and actually had articles in James Defense Weekly based on materials that we had shared with a number of people from Boeing at McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed and Northrop and did sort of an expose on the whole development in the 40s and 50s of these sort of anti-gravity and energy systems and that they all went black by 1954. In fact, we can trace it all the way down to the, the year 
that all of that information, which at one time was in open source aerospace journals, went black and, and then just disappeared off the radar scope. And they didn't disappear because they didn't work or because they were not legitimate. It's because they did work and they realized, well, you know, gee, if this information is allowed to proliferate, we basically will not need a petrodollar system. We will not need a centralized energy system. Every individual village in the world would have its own power plant, and it would be a totally different world order. It would be a completely different geopolitical arrangement than what you see in the world today. And, you know, the two or 300 folks who sit on a committee controlling this sort of information, they really don't want that to happen. Now, of course, many of them now are on the, the, the real horns of a dilemma because with China and India industrializing at 10 and 15 percent a year with two and a half billion people between the two of them, you're running up into this true Malthusian dilemma where so many people will be wanting to use cars and air conditioning and what have you that, uh, frankly, I think before we collapse the biosphere and melt both polar ice caps, we're going to run into serious geopolitical conflict over uh, oil supplies and all of those sort of issues of, of commodity depletion. So this is a, a seriously large problem that you hear about every day in the mainstream news media. But interestingly, the mainstream news media will not discuss the solutions. I could hand a Washington and Post reporter on a silver platter, just positive proof of the existence of these technologies, and they will not run a story on it. I know this because I have done so. And I think that what you find is that the corruption that's in the large mainstream media and that's in, in government and corporations is, is so systemic that the only way that you're going to succeed in getting this issue uh, resolved is the people being educated about it through the Internet and the alternative media, raising the funds, bringing these technologies out, and have a leadership team that will not sell out to a corporation, even if they offer you billions of dollars for it, which we would not, and also, I might add, would not be intimidated if we were threatened. I mean, this is what we do with the Disclosure Project. Everyone said we couldn't do it, you know, that we couldn't take top secret witnesses with their documents and put it out on the street. Uh, that we would be rubbed out or erased uh, or or worse, and the fact is we did it, and it's it's now become a global, worldwide uh, disclosure movement with branches all over the world. And so, what I say to people is that we have a track record of doing that with the information about this issue. Now let's actually do it with an operating device, and that's what our goal is at uh, the OrionProject.org. <laughs> We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, 
Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R E Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer, and we're going to talk to him about two things he's involved in. One is the Orion Project, a foundation designed to look into zero-point energy and its ramifications, and, of course, the Disclosure Project, which relates to UFOs. David? Dr. Greer, there's something you said before that I think is really uh, key to this discussion, which is that India and China are quickly becoming two of the largest consumers of petroleum, and they're really sort of tilting the balance of the worldwide petroleum market. And we all know that, and we're all feeling the price at the pump with regards to that. But I think there are voices out there that then would say, well, okay, if that's the reality, we know that it is, it starts to look like a race for superiority. If we indeed have inside of some black part of the government um, zero-point energy devices, wouldn't it make sense strategically at this point in time to come forward with the idea that not only do we have these, but we're going to deploy them Certainly in terms of our military, because obviously if you had such a thing, the military superiority you could command with that technology would be vast, immediate, and absolute. If if indeed you have these technologies in some black part of the government, and now you've got a situation by where you can technologically leapfrog countries like uh, China, like India and any other country that is basically now going where we've already been. You know, we've had how many years of being hardcore oil consumers. We know how this game works. The market for those products is growing. So if I'm an oil company, it's kind of like what happened when smoking was sort of attacked here in the United States. What essentially the, the tobacco companies did was to move their products overseas and grow new markets in places like Asia and South right. America. So do we not then end up with the same kind of a scenario by where if indeed the black portions of the government have these technologies, wouldn't they be rolling them out now from the point of view of a global strategic initiative? No, and here's why. Your geopolitical power derives from your economic prowess and technological edge. These technologies, while more complex than than a toaster, are not a nuclear reactor. They are not so so difficult. I mean, if, if Tina, let's put some reality around this. Go to just go to the website, theorionproject.org, and look at the uh, slideshow and the information from 1908 when Nikola Tesla and a farmer, 
home, uh, a self-trained engineer named Stubblefield invented the earth battery that was a resonant earth battery that was running his farm from this so-called quantum vacuum flux field in 1908. They took it to Washington, demonstrated it. Then, of course, the whole kibosh got put down. Well, man, Westinghouse got involved. The whole thing went boom. You never heard another word from it. But there is a historical record of this. The issue isn't... (laughs) If these come out, wouldn't this give the, the U.S. a leg up? Because you're going to immediately have them replicated and, and reverse engineered and figured out uh, by China, by Indonesia, by uh, Africa, by all over. Now, when that happens, this will be the tide that will lift all ships, but it will be a post-Western world. Because when you reach parity, where you have technological and economic output, equal per capita, look at the picture. All of Europe and America is 600 million people, whereas India and China alone are two and a half billion. Never mind South America, never mind the rest of Asia, never mind. So in a world with six and a half billion people, we're barely more than 10% of that or around 10% of that. The other 90% outside of Europe and America uh, are really impoverished for the most part. And there's an attempting to emerge out of that poverty into something like a middle class, but they're trying to do it with coal-fired power plants without scrubbers and cars and everything else. So we're running into a clash of civilizations and a clash of commodity depletion. But by re- if these technologies were released, you would lift all of the people of the planet out of poverty, but then you would have to put a seat at the geopolitical table for these other folks. And this is what's been resisted. If people think this is about money, it is not the way about money the way you and I think of money. Money to me is, gee, can I pay for my kids' college tuition bills? And I have four daughters. The question is, in this case, who controls the global agenda and the global geopolitical order? And that is what would change. And it would change rather quickly. 10 to 20 years after the announcement of these technologies, the world would be a much better place, but it would also be a very, very, very different place. It would be the biggest change in the geopolitical order and control of the world since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s. Well, um, just a couple of things. The, the the estimated population of the United States is just over 300 million, not 600 million. Talking about Western Europe and America. Listen, ah, Western I, Europe and I, America. I you and listen carefully. Okay. I think very precisely. I stated that Western Europe and America have a population of over six. 600 million, okay. the world is six and a half billion. So we're mm-hmm. 10% of the world's population. It's not much. I mean, it's really only 10%. Well, absolutely. And as far as big money is concerned, certainly um, anybody who goes to the store and in, in goes to any store in the United States to buy a product sees that it's made in China. And if you start to dig right. behind the reality of that, of course, we find out that at this point, economically, the game is over. The Chinese have won. If the Chinese wanted to exert serious control over the United States, all they have to do is send us an invoice, and this country is finished. So if we look at... Dumping uh, their their treasury, their trillion dollars with the treasury bonds, yeah. Yeah. Them in Japan, uh, they dump all the bonds. Uh, it's pretty much over for the United States, and there are people who, are, at this point, would argue that you know that that shoe is going to fall any moment. We're going to have to come to a completely new way of looking at living on planet Earth. I think we're going to have to the view that it is a very small place. 
Uh, we're eventually, I think, going to end up with a, a global currency. I think we're eventually going to uh, end up with a uh, well, distinct culture, so sort of a global culture. Uh, we're going to have to get out of this zero-sum game of the pie is only so big because the pie is not only so big, the pie is infinite. Once you understand that there's an infinite source of energy and the ability to live on the planet in a sustainable way. Right now, we don't have a sustainable civilization on this planet. We have a terminal civilization. Everybody knows it. But to get to a sustainable civilization, you're going to have to release the information and technologies that would change who the controllers are. And, you know, I personally have have sat with some of these folks who are on this so-called committee of two or three hundred people who who really make these sort of decisions. And there's a growing number of them. I estimate that between 60 and 70 percent of them now know that this information needs to come out and that we're a day late and a dollar short. Now, there's a very violent rogue element within this component that, that are trying to continue with the secrecy. So uh, I remember meeting with a man who who is uh, works with the Bush administration and, and nuclear power issues, and, and he's a private attorney, a Harvard-educated attorney in Washington. And right before Christmas, he and I had a dinner at the university club there on 16th Street, right down from the White House, and, and we had this very interesting conversation. He said, you know, three years ago, I would not even have sat down to discuss this matter with you. Now, more and more of my colleagues realize we're really at the end game. We've got to come out with a solution. He says, the problem is the solutions that you're advocating are too good. And I said, yes, I've heard this before, and I've heard it from people inside military and corporate projects where they've had these energy systems developed way beyond anything nuclear. I mean, that stuff's old, clunky, 40s stuff. Forget nuclear propulsion. Well, but yeah, I We're think you have to. Very elegant physics here. And he said, the problem is, is that people want to change it. <laughs> they want to tinker around the edges. And this is why when you get into these political conversations, they don't, they want to change, but they want to try to change it incrementally and slowly. And there was a woman at the table who had been a senior State Department official uh, some years ago who's retired now who barked at this attorney who works in the Bush administration and said, it's too late to do incrementalism. And we and it, <laughs> it was just hilarious. I mean, I wish somebody could have been a fly on the wall and recorded this. But it is. I mean, she was completely correct that it, we really don't have time. You know, we're talking about, you know, getting a little more efficiency out of the internal combustion engine when you've got uh, you know something like 600 coal-fired power plants going online in the next decade in China and India so here's the thing though of course when we talk about nuclear technology it's always critical to differentiate between what you're referring to fission technology versus fusion technology a technology that um, not only has not really been explored properly but actually, I was just recently watching a presentation by Freeman Dyson's son to the uh, TED conference, the prestigious TED conference, where he described in, in quite a bit of detail the work that his father, uh, Freeman Dyson, was doing with attempts to create fusion technology and fusion technology rockets. This is, of course, a completely separate project right. from what Stanton Friedman was working on. And they ran into some real issues there, but... Certainly, if we look at the sort of the base technological ramifications of fission versus fusion, um, fusion technology is a technology that not only have we not explored, but we know it works real well. It powers our star. So uh, given that reality, are you now saying that essentially uh, the consideration of fusion re reaction is something that is no longer being looked at by the powers that be? 
It's very antiquated, and it certainly isn't needed. It's a, it's a very complex, potentially dangerous, expensive system that these more elegant uh, electromagnetic flux systems will absolutely leapfrog and should leapfrog and replace. It's not to say it wouldn't be uh, a solution better than uh, a, you know, nuclear fission or burning coal, but uh, the thing is is that it's really not the, it's not the direction to go in. And by the way, the Department of Energy has dumped untold billions of dollars into fusion research mm -hmm. over the oh, yeah. last uh, 30, 40, 50 years, which is one of the reasons why people want to protect that, because you have the, you know, what Eisenhower talked about, the military, industrial, laboratory, university, corporate complex. You know, there are a lot of people feeding at, a, at this trough, and there are a lot of, you know, folks who, who really would not want to see a more elegant solution come out because there's a heck of a lot of money being thrown at some of these problems. It's sort of like the idea for cap and trade for global warming. Well, you know, it's a multi-trillion dollar, uh, multi-year project when a tiny fraction of that going into this kind of research we're talking about would result in the dispositive dis dis proof and uh, principal devices that would begin to just replace the centralized grid. And this is another problem. You know, many of these larger systems like fusion are still going to be dependent on big centralized distributed systems. And one of the problems we have in the United States, but also throughout the world, is distribution of power. You have an, a grid that is creaking and collapsing and really uh, antiquated. But if you have a system that's an electromagnetic generator that's the size of a, a heat pump, and it's generating, you know, all the kilowatts you need for your home, you don't need a grid. I mean, the whole concept of a grid, you see these pictures of New York City in the turn of the century 100 years ago with all the streets crisscrossed with these lines. We've been in this sort of centralized grid mentality for over 100 years. We need to move into a post-grid world, uh, and that's completely doable with the kinds of technology the orionproject.org is, is wanting to research and develop. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You are the We're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer, and the first part of this discussion will focus on the Orion Project, looking for a better way to find simple, clean, affordable energy resources. And in part two, we'll talk about the Disclosure Project. David, you want to pick it up on this? Yeah, um, you brought up Tesla, Stephen, and uh, that, uh, Nikola Tesla is a particular uh, fascination of mine. I've always been fascinated by his story and uh, by the things he's known for and the things he's not known for. 
Now, when you talk about Tesla's participation in working with uh, Zero Point Energy, I'd like you to sort of put that in context with regards to the work that he had been doing in Colorado Springs, which was um, really more about wireless transmission of energy. And then also, of course, the uh, work that he did at Wardenclyffe, which really ended up, in many ways, being his downfall. So, uh, you know, my understanding from the reading I've done is that Tesla's primary work was really wrapped up in, and, and by the way, just uh, to set the stage here for people who don't have a good handle on who Tesla was, Tesla was really the inventor of alternating current electricity. And at the time that AC, at the time that, that this happened, basically he went up against uh, perhaps the greatest inventor of the time and the one who is unfortunately remembered much more readily than Tesla, uh, one uh, Thomas Alva Edison, who was the inventor of direct current electricity, certainly the inventor and promoter of it. And it was an epic battle between the two of them. But to my understanding, most of the work that Tesla had done was with regards to the wireless transmission of energy, specifically using things like the telluric currents, uh, transverse waves, and essentially creating what are, in essence, resonance fields. Now, he had done a lot of work in this regard. In fact, there's a famous story of him essentially creating a resonance feedback loop in the building where he had his laboratory that created such a sensation because the building started to shake violently and the cops came. And anybody who reads uh, the, the history of Tesla will find these stories. But what did I miss with regards to Tesla's work in the zero-point field? Could you fill us in on that, please? Well, I think what isn't understood, and this is the part of the story that gets suppressed, because uh, you know what you're describing, you couldn't suppress. He had an electric car running that was a that running was running on a zero-point or quantum vacuum flux type resonance system that did not need recharging. And uh, this was something you know J.P. Morgan famously said. Well, if I can't put a meter on it. We're not going to let it get out there. You know, the kind of vested interest and special interest corruption goes a long way back. Uh, I'm working with a man who worked in the patent office who has personal knowledge of 4,000 patents that have been seized uh, under uh, Title 35, Section 180-181 that deal with these kinds of resonant field quantum flux zero-point energy generators. This is not an urban myth. I mean, this is a very well-established. Tesla certainly, quote, stumbled across these phenomenon, along with the wireless transmission of power and many other things. I mean, he's a genius. But th the point is, is that there were certain things that really would have made a run at the power base that existed. For example, there was a movement afoot when cars began to be rolled out to make them all electric. And they said, well, like hell, because the Rockefeller, Standard Oil, wanted to have them running on, of course, oil, gasoline. Now, what people don't understand is that at the time those power plays were going on, Stan the Rockefeller family's personal income from Standard Oil exceeded the entire income of the United States government. That is a true statistic. The kind of power that was concentrated at that time in relatively handful of, of men's hands is astonishing. There's a similar sort of classified element of this that has continued to this day. And the problem is is that the breakthroughs that, that Tesla and Stubblefield and T. Townsend Brown, by the way, who worked on the uh, electrogravitic or so-called electromagnetogravitic uh, 
anti-gravity systems, beginning in the 20s, I might add. This is simply uh, not known by the public, and that's why the orionproject.org, if you go on that site, you'll see quite a bit of information. For example, most people don't know about the Koloski Frost Experiment. Well, this was done in the late 1920s in Germany, where they put a 100-millimeter cube of a silicon, or basically quartz crystal, in a, a copper box that was sealed and hit it with a specific frequency, resonant frequency of a radio frequency, not electromagnetic current, but a radio frequency. The, this 100 millimeter cube of quartz crystal, pure quartz crystal, began to resonate and expand it. And then this entire box, this very heavy box, lifted and was lifted off the counter and it would stay elevated for as long as they kept that specific frequency. This was reported in a mainstream radio frequency journal in Germany in, in I believe 28 or 29. We have acquired that technical information. We're convinced this can be reproduced. So we're now talking, what is this, 80 years later? And we're burning coal for 57% of the electricity in America. This is insane. So the, the point I'm making is that there's a very, very long history. And there are people who are mainstream journalists who tried to break the story, like Nick Cook with uh, James Stephens Weekly. But, you know, you don't find it on CNN or the Washington Post, uh, and nor do you find it in the history books about Nikola Tesla and the work he had done with an electric car running around that didn't need to be recharged or what's going on there. Actually, Stephen, uh, when I talk about Tesla, I'm not referring to the media coverage of Tesla. I'm referring to Tesla's own autobiography and works. So I'm not going off of any media perceptions of, of his. I'm going strictly off of the work that he published, his own notes. In his own notes, what I see as someone who, I won't call myself a scholar of Tesla, but I'm someone with much more than just a, a passing interest in the man, I see absolutely no indication of anything that I've heard many people describe. I mean, what we see at the end of his life was that, I mean, we have to, you know, we have to put Tesla into a larger context here. Tesla was a man who was a very brilliant person who was also highly obsessive compulsive. Um, and it's pretty clear that towards the end of his life, like many people who are highly gifted, um, his rationality started to slip away a bit. This is well documented in his own words, not any media perception of him and not any media distortion of, of, of his thoughts of his inventions. So I think, again, what we have to do is try to like figure out here when we talk about, for example, I mean, you know, in 1931, he publishes a, a specific work about uh, deriving thermal energy from the ocean. And now we know that geothermal energy is a very fascinating thing that, for countries like Iceland, basically provides 90% of their power needs. Tesla had done a tremendous amount of work on the thermal energy in the oceans. This is in 1931. We're, we're at a time where we're starting to approach the end of his life. I mean, he, wasn't, he didn't die in 1931, but it's very clear that later in his life, some of what was coming out of him just wasn't rational. And what you then find out is that in that period of time, this is when he started talking about things like teleportation and time travel. But this is, of course, also after he had studied very carefully Albert Einstein's work, including the theory of general relativity, and essentially tried to claim that Einstein's work was wrong. And, I mean, Einstein has some reservations about some of his own theories towards the end of his life, but certainly our understanding of energy as it stands today, much of it can be tied to Einstein's work. So, you know, when you say that this stuff was suppressed, are you going to tell us that Tesla suppressed himself? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing here. No, what I'm saying is that there's a selective archive available. 
And this is going to be true of, of any of this. I mean, you're, you're speaking as if everything that Tesla would have worked on is available. You know, you go down to your library and read about it. This is simply not how it works. And, and we know this is true of T. Townsend Brown's work as well. And it's been reported, and uh, I think it's true, that many of the papers that Tesla had at the time of his death were confiscated. I'm told by the FBI. I don't know who actually confiscated his his papers, but that there were many papers and notes that he had that he had not published that dealt with these issues. The point is, it's ancient history. I mean, but there are other sources you can go to, whether you want to look at at the history of, of, of what Tesla and Subblefield were demonstrating in 1908. He certainly wasn't senile in 1908. I think that what you find is that there's a very long history of phenomena that deal with electromagnetic and magnetic field flux resonant energy that exists, whether it's Tesla, whether it's T. Townsend Brown, whether it's these experimental programs in Germany in the 1920s, and others that have been more recent. The question is, why aren't those being looked at? We're dumping tens of billions of dollars into hot fusion, as you point out. We're dumping trillions, potentially, into cap-and-trade proposals for uh, containing greenhouse gases. There's a $2 billion fund that we're funding as taxpayers to clean up coal, to develop clean coal. Why isn't there some tiny percentage of that going into recreating these experiments and developing a electromagnetic generator system that would replace the fossil fuels and nuclear power, which uh, can occur. I mean, I think this is what the OrionProject.org is proposing. I mean, rather than getting into an esoteric debate with you about the merits of Einstein versus Tesla versus somebody else, my point is is that this is exactly the kind of work that needs to happen uh, that isn't happening. And I don't think it's going to happen through the Department of Energy or the U.S. government yet. Uh, I think that my read on, on the situation with these large power centers is that everyone wants to know about this stuff, but nobody wants to do anything about it. There's one thing to act. It's another thing to know. And I remember sitting with a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, a few years ago, and, and he was very interested in learning of these things because he didn't know about them. And then when I asked him to actually take action told a hearing where, where this kind of evidence and scientists could be subpoenaed and it could come out, he just blanched twice. He says, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. It's too dangerous. I said, well, why not? You took a note to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. So this is prima facie evidence that the interests of the people are being subverted. But he wouldn't do it. So I think that what you find with the government, the, the non-covert, non-black government, if you want to call it that, is that there is a lot of interest, but very few people really want to do it when they realize what's involved. Because, again, uh, as this attorney told me, you're talking about changes that aren't tinkering around the edges, which is all the discussions you see on CNN and in all of the news programs. You know, they're talking about really putting Band-Aids on a, on, on a huge Hoover Dam that's bu about to bust. And I think that the issue really becomes, do people want a real solution or do they just want to talk about uh, these sort of baby steps that are, are way too little too late? And I think uh, we need to change the conversation to the creative engineering and inventing and real scientific research that needs to be funded so that these sort of big leaps forward that, that, that we should have taken as a civilization of 50 to 100 years ago can now occur.
Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the PowerCast, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Greer, focusing first on the search for improved energy resources with the Orion Project, with which he's connected, and also later on the Disclosure Project. David, before you pick up, I just want to ask you something. It just really is kind of an aside here. T. Townsend Brown, as you might recall, was originally the founder of NICAP before Major Donald Keogh took over that organization. Now, did the original NICAP have something to do with his free energy research? I honestly don't know whether it did or not. Uh, I know NICAP had a, a, a large number of intelligence and military and corporate people involved with it. Certainly there was, uh, in some of those, uh, and I think to this day in some of these UFO organizations, there's sort of a, a revolving door uh, that goes through. Whether or not you know there was any direct connection, I think my understanding is that the work that T. Townsend Brown was doing pretty much went uh, classified in the early 50s. Um, what I wanted to comment on before, Stephen, when you said it's a different, one thing to act, it's another thing to know, I couldn't agree more with you on that statement. Of course, it's also really useful to know what you're acting on. And uh, when we're discussing esoteric technological issues, certainly it's, it's critical for people who don't understand the technologies involved to have a framework for, for which to base the discussion. One of the main reasons we really want to have you on the show, one of the main reasons I want to have you on the show, was because of a friend of mine who is based out on the West Coast, a high-tech entrepreneur, very, very successful guy. And he's a guy who, interestingly enough, has an interest in the topics that we discuss on the Paracast. And also, as you can well imagine, because of that, he has a very deep interest in alternative energy sources. Now, uh, he contacted me to ask about you. Apparently, he found your website on the Internet and found that you were looking for money. Now, as I said, this is a guy who has been tremendously successful and uh, has a personal thing about funding things that I don't want to say make trouble, but he's a, he's one of these prototypical, he's a troublemaker. He loves to give money. He's, he's not quite as wealthy as George Soros. He, I think he'd like to be, but he's up there. He's really up there. And he did research and he called me up and he said, look, I found this website and he and I talk all the time. He's been a great friend and been very supportive of the projects that I from time to time get involved with. I'm the kind of person who I'm very close with him. So I'm very hesitant to ever go to him for money issues. In fact, I really try not to. 
You know how that works. But he found the Orion Project website, and he looked at your meter. He's like, three million bucks? That's nothing. And he called me up, and he said, how can these guys get something working for three million bucks? That's ridiculous. Those are his words, not mine. He said, that's just crazy. How can they do that? David, what do you know about this guy? So I started telling him, you know, we've had you on the show. He actually remembered he had listened to those episodes, and he had a bunch of questions. He's the kind of guy, Stephen, that could write a check for three million bucks and not even, like, know he wrote it. Just, you know, this is, I mean, he spends, I mean, you know, these kind of people, they have, I won't say numbers, but they have huge amounts of money, which means they have huge amounts of influence if they choose to exercise it. But this particular guy, he's kind of like a George Soros light. And what's kind of funny right now is he's probably going to listen to this episode, and I'm sure he's laughing when I say that, because I've said that to his face, and it gives me a hard time about it. You know, he could, like, write a check for three million bucks without thinking about it. But a guy like that is a guy who doesn't care so much about money. He doesn't care about how money is spent. That's not an issue. He cares about his reputation. All right. He wants to be a troublemaker. At the same time, he doesn't want to be seen as a guy who's gone off the edge. Nobody does, you know, right? I mean, that's that's a reasonable thing. So let's just make believe for a moment that I'm him. Because right now in this conversation, I'm essentially going to act as his proxy. As I said, he's the kind of guy who, if he saw there was something credible, something that potentially could succeed, this is like three million bucks. I mean, 30 million bucks for him is something that I've seen him put those kind of sums of money into things because that's the kind of person he is. So with that knowledge, I'm sure that if he sat at a table with you, he'd say, all right, you say you can do this for three million bucks. Who's involved? That would be his first question. Who's involved in this, Dr. Greer? Well, I think, you again, at the orionproject.org, you'll see who's involved with the project. Uh, you'll also see the work we're doing with um, a couple of inventors uh, that are – most of these people don't want to be named publicly. But if, they, if it was a serious uh, individual, we would discuss who they are. And they're willing to work. Uh, on a reasonable basis to get these done. Now, I have to tell you, if you go to uh, AERO2012.com, which is a, a regular corporation, that budget is like $50 million for that. And, and we realize $3 million seems like a very small amount of money for an R&D. Because what, what we're proposing to do is to pull in core of a dozen of these uh, scientists who understand this and get to generation 1.0. We're not saying that we're going to get to, to something that we're going to be standing up a large manufacturing operation, but to just get the science and the technology from those that we've identified up to something that's a robust demonstrator that would uh, establish and provide this positive proof, and it could be replicated and tested at universities so that you could do that. Now, remember, we're not starting at zero. If you're doing an R&D effort at zero, but you're standing on the shoulders of giants, I keep saying this going all the way back to Tesla, but also the other research that's been done, and these scientists, uh, the gentleman I referred to earlier, who I will not name on the air, but who had worked in this classified project uh, where they had actually uh, taken the anti-gravity systems and into generations of, of power uh, from them, where the money got, the, the plug got pulled because he was successful, and then 
then it was replicated at these labs in Washington, and they had their money pulled. Uh, I mean, if there's a serious person there, if this person exists, as you say, I'm going to take your word for it, you know, we could sit down with him and this uh, inventor and this, this physicist and say, here's what he can do. Now, he has given me a budget to completely replicate his system and turn it into an energy generation system for under $1 million. But it's because the taxpayers had already paid for a lot of the R&D for years that he had done before the plug got pulled. So you're not starting at a baseline of zero with what the orionproject.org is working on. You're starting where many of these people have put 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their lives into this kind of research, and some of them within government and corporate programs. So what I would suggest is that that's where we want to go. Now, of course, we would welcome a larger grant uh, we are a tax-deductible foundation. If they wanted to be able to, uh, you know, do more in a shorter time frame and take it to a, a higher level of efficiency and reliability and what have you, uh, because I certainly understand what R&D budgets are. I mean, look, Chrysler spent something between two and three billion dollars to re-engineer this hideous box called the minivan, which is, you know, four wheels and, and an internal combustion engine sitting in a, an ugly box. So, and as a physician, I understand what goes into R&D for biomedical systems. And my daughter just got her PhD at uh, UCSF in, uh, in San Francisco, where Genentech got started. And, and we understand that. I mean, we're not naive about, about that. But we're also saying that let's start with this. Let's have a campus here near the University of Virginia, a small research facility, where we have the right equipment and in-house fabricating capability and the best of these mines that we've identified with them being paid so they're not having to do this on nights and weekends and in their basements. And let's see what we can do in a year or 18 months. I think it would rock the world. And if you say he's someone who kind of likes to shake things up, this would be it. I mean, <laughs> you know, this would, this, this would really shake up the status quo quite a bit and would make anything George Soros is talking about look like uh, child's play. But I think that what we really want to do here is introduce the science at a level. Uh, and our plan, by the way, and this is also true for Arrow, is that any system that is brought to us or that we develop has to be replicated and tested independently at three separate academic facilities. Because one of the things that we have to, to avoid is this crazy inventor syndrome where people have these breakthroughs and then they say, oh, but no one can know how it works. I said, well, do you want it to benefit the world or not? If you have a billion copies of it eventually out there, people are going to know how it works. So one of the things that we're trying to do is uh, get out of this sort of paranoid, crazy inventor sy syndrome and make it as transparent as we possibly can. The kind of scientists that we have identified, while I don't have their permission to mention them on a radio broadcast, are certainly real people. And if there's a, a, a player, like you mentioned, if he does exist and isn't fictitious, we could, certainly could sit and we could have a discussion with these scientists and talk you know about what, what Stephen, could be done. I'm a little offended at your tone, and I'll tell you why, okay? I've mentioned one person who's a buddy of mine who's very wealthy. Three times you said, if he exists. I've never met you personally. I don't know if you're giving me a theoretical case or a real oh, case. Oh, oh, actually you have, but that's a whole other story. You, you have met me personally. If he's really there, then I think this is a, a wonderful that's num thing. That's to number four. I'm happy to talk right. with him. That's number four. So I look at your website and I see two names, Bill Constantino and Jan Bravo. Those are the two people who are associated right now 
with the Orion Project. What are these people's engineering credentials? Well, Jan Bravo is, has been one of our funders and is a fellow physician. Bill Constantino is an engineer and has his own consulting firm who's working with us. Uh, at this point, we're all volunteers. And uh, somewhere on there, uh, Dr. Ted Loader, who's a professor emeritus from University of New Hampshire, is a key part of our team heading up these scientists and actually identifying them for us and meeting with them. I see. So basically we have, and by the way, uh, Loader is actually not identified on the um, Orion Project site. He's identified on the Aero site. I, I don't know that we're yet clear on the differentiation between these two organizations. Can you clarify that just a little bit, please? The OrionProject.org is a nonprofit research group. Arrow is intended to be the vehicle for actually moving the technology out and, and eventually commercializing anything that has legitimacy and is robust enough to, to be commercially viable. But as you know, there's a big R&D cycle between a breakthrough of something that would prove the physics and the science and something that could be you know, sold at Ace Hardware Store or someplace, I mean, you said hardware, that could actually be reliable enough. We think that that R&D cycle is probably, you know, eight or nine digits. It's probably a very big R&D cycle um, to get it to that point where, you know, people would run their home or actually create a, a motor in their car, uh, electric motor that would be self-regenerating and, and, and pulling energy off the, the so-called quantum vacuum flux field. That's why people uh, like you're referring to, and I apologize, so I offended you by saying that. I was just saying that theoretically I don't know this man. But if he would be interested in pursuing this, then I think that there are two levels of involvement. One is in the basic science R&D. You've got to do that first. And people have to be realistic. This hasn't happened yet. If you look at the history of these new energy attempts, they've either been in highly classified corporate projects and government projects or they've been these sort of shoestring operations, people doing out of the boot of their car and out of their basement, and they can only take them so far. And, and the other issue, and this is a really key point, is that I think that there has been a lack of realization that no single person is going to be able to take a breakthrough and come up with this robust demonstrator for energy generation because it's going to be an interdisciplinary team that involves materials, specialized materials, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, all kinds of folks will have to be brought in, which is why you need a consulting budget. You need people who have diverse backgrounds to do this and who really understand those sciences as it applies to this heretofore pretty hidden area of information. But we think that when the synergy happens there, that you'll be able to collapse time frames and have some seriously large breakthroughs quickly. The basic R&D that we want to do with the OrionProject.org hasn't really been done to the point that it, that it needs to be. But eventually, you're going to have to have some kind of regular corporate entity that would then take it, commercialize it, and begin to get it out. And the, the big part of, for both of those operations is a strategic team that understands what you're up against. You're not bringing out another software program or another iMac or something. You're bringing out information and technologies that would really transform the earth in a wonderful way, but also would upset the apple cart of the current geopolitical order in a very large way. Sure, that's obvious. But again, do you think it's unreasonable, Stephen, to ask what engineering savvy does Bill Costantino or Jan Bravo bring to this task? What you said is exactly correct. In order to do this, 
it really requires a tremendous amount of knowledge of not only the technical processes by which you're going to accomplish this, but also the business-related issues of this, because you are going to upset a lot of apple carts, the political-related issues. I see nothing. As someone who, for example, want to put money in this, I see absolutely nothing to indicate what either Mr. Costantino, because I don't see a professional degree related to him, or Dr. Bravo can bring that addresses either of those issues. Is that unreasonable request? I mean, I, I think this is something that if I was a person personally who was going to put a real no, that's not their role. I mean, these are people who are volunteering to help organize and fund what we're doing so far. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they're the sole foundation of everyone we're working with. There's a very large number of scientists and engineers and academics that are in our network that we're working with. Will you not identify a single one? Not one? Really? Again, I don't think that's an unreasonable request. If you're putting together an engineering project here, I think it it's only reasonable to, to hope that we could see one person on here who does have an engineering background who is relevant to this project. Or do you think that's an unreasonable request? I'm, try, I'm trying to understand where this is coming from. Well, Bill Constantino is an engineer. He does have an engineering background and as well as a business background. I think that, you know, the, the, the big issue for a lot of people is how publicly exposed they want to be. We haven't asked everyone that we're working with, do you want to be on a public website or be named in radio shows? You know, I think, you know, it's sort of a red herring. The two things are not necessarily the same. There are many people who, in fact, who are very knowledgeable in these areas, who are either currently or have recently been employed by uh, the Department of Defense uh, or been in corporate programs and they absolutely don't want to be named on a public website related to doing this, but it doesn't mean they're not going to work with us. They are and they want to. In fact, even Dr. Loader, who, who is, you know, took a lot of flack at the University of New Hampshire, he was with the uh, Institute of Earth, Oceans and Space uh, working with these issues, you know, he said, look, I really don't want to be the public face of, of this because I've taken enough heat already. So Dr. Greer, we're just about running out of time for our first half. So before we proceed, if someone wants to have more information about the Orion Project and maybe help out financially, where do they go? They go to theorionproject.org, and there are also links there to a number of scientific papers and other people who we are working on. I mean, I, I don't have the website here in front of me, but if you walk through the, the website, you'll see there, there are quite a few references on there. We'll continue this discussion and get into the Disclosure Project on Part 2 of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Here we are returning on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney uh, to our discussion with Dr. Stephen Greer, the founder of the Orion Project, and also the Disclosure Project and C-SETI. I felt that it would be useful on the second hour to bring in a friend of ours, because one of the things we want to talk about, Dr. Greer, is a presentation that you did at the X conference uh, back in 2006, if I'm not wrong, that uh, both myself and our friend Jeremy Vaney attended. And Jeremy has agreed to join us on the show. Now, we'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of the topics you touched upon. As Jeremy is an abductee and someone who has a tremendous degree of interest in the topic of UFOs and extraterrestrials, we want to talk with you a bit about your involvement in, dis in the Disclosure Project, uh, some of the people involved in the Disclosure Project, and where that project stands today. So why don't we just start by asking, what is the current status of your part of the Disclosure Project? I know that you brought up that the U.K. and France have both re released documents 
I've actually looked over a number of these documents, and most of them really just relate to UFO sightings. Um, there's not really much of any real meat that many of us had hoped would come out. I mean, there was some stuff about Rendlesham that came out of the UK files, but for the most part, what we're talking about are essentially just reports of sightings. No, no tremendous amount of, of documents dealing with conclusions of any of this or sourcing of any of these things. Uh, certainly, in, in my perusal of the documents from both France and the UK, there was no discussion of things like recovered artifacts. I mean, and not that we would expect there to be, because I think right. we would expect that to be at the top level of secrecy. But at this point, let's talk about the disclosure project that you're specifically associated with here in the States. What has resulted from this? And you did a big press conference back in 2001, if I'm not wrong. What's been the follow-up to that disclosure press conference? Well, there's been a lot of follow-up. I think one thing is that when we started on that endeavor, there was only around 40 or 50 percent of the public that, that thinks that these UFOs are real and that the government's been hiding information. Now that number is up for close to 80 percent. What we have found is that it, it's changed the dialogue from, you know, does it exist to when are the governments going to finally begin to deal with this in a transparent fashion? And I think what we're seeing is that the leadership for that and the leadership for, for disclosure is not happening in the United States. It's happening in, in the European Union. It's happening from the Vatican. It's happening from the British government. It's happening in, in lesser degrees, perhaps, in, in some other countries. And I think that the foot dragging that's happened over the last six or eight years is primarily American foot dragging. Uh, and my understanding from, from people I work with in, in Europe and in France is that there's a great deal of frustration with the foot dragging, the official foot dragging in the United States. You know, recently there was this uh, a meeting that got reported at the United Nations. Um, that was in February, I believe it was on the 12th, where there were some 30-plus nations there for this uh, closed-door session where one of the subjects discussed, not the only one, what was the UFO matter. The Americans brought in some military folks who, who used the, the typical scare tactics to talk about uh, how destabilizing it would be if the governments of the world acknowledged that we weren't alone and that the, the UFOs were real. And I think that that sort of status quo mentality is, is very much what you find on this side of the pond in the United States. And, and by extension, unfortunately, I think with Canada as well, because the can Canadian policy usually is pretty much lockstep with, with America. And yet there there have been cracks in that coalition of secrecy and I think they're they're mainly coming out of Europe and, and to some extent even the Vatican. Let me just ask you a quick question here and as you probably know Dr. Gurr I go back in the UFO field for a long time. I remember back in the 1950s Major Kehoe was pushing for some sort of disclosure about UFOs and I guess the biggest question I have about all this is what is it that you think the government knows now about UFOs? How much information do they have? How far-reaching is it? Well, I'm, uh, I'm certain that in the United States that they not only have the actual material and have used electromagnetic weapon systems to down, on occasion, not often, extraterrestrial vehicles, but have studied them and figured out uh, how they operate. Uh, I think that beyond that, they've also been able to set up a parallel uh, program that uses those sorts of technologies and really a lot of advances to um, hoax certain events that the unsuspecting UFO public would think was an alien event when it isn't. 
And I think this is one of the real problems is that it's very hard to assess this whole phenomenon without knowing what the classified capabilities have been since the 50s and 60s, which have gone up exponentially. And I think this is one of the real areas of uh, where you go through the looking glass very quickly, unfortunately, because what you find is that there, there's a great deal of knowledge that has been developed uh, between the 30s and the 50s. And remember, this is nothing new. I mean, um, uh, there's a man there in uh, Denver who was very good friends with, who's a fellow medical doctor, Dr. Altshuler, John Altshuler, and his his uncle was uh, the, the General Jimmy Doolittle. Towards the end of his life, General Doolittle uh, shared with, with, with Dr. Altshuler that, in fact, uh, he had uh, been sent by Roosevelt over to the European theater to study these things called Foo Fighters, and everyone laughs. That is the name of a rock group. But they got their name from what these mysterious objects that were seen uh, in the European theater. And, of course, the, the, the Nazis thought it was a secret uh, U.S. or British thing, and we thought it might be a secret German system. And Jimmy Doolittle came back and told uh, President Roosevelt and I'm quoting as closely as I can recall from my conversation with Dr. Altshuler, that they were, quote, interplanetary vehicles. So now that would have been in 1943, 44, somewhere in that time period. Uh, and so we're talking 65 years ago or so. So we know that there have been investigations into this. And we also know that they have acquired materiel. They've acquired bodies. Uh, they have uh, studied the propulsion and energy. Okay, system. we know they've acquired bodies. How do we know this? From Roswell or what? Well, uh, there's a more than one source of, of people that we've worked with who have actually handled them and been on retrieval uh, teams. We had a, a, a man who had been at Fort Huachuca in an underground facility there where there were nine of these extraterrestrial vehicles as well as autopsy bodies that were present. So, you know, certainly over the years this has happened. I don't think it's not a daily occurrence, but over a 60-year time span, it has happened. Now, how many other countries have the same kind of materiel? I don't know. There are reports that perhaps in Russia this has happened. I have not gotten reports that they have that kind of materiel in France uh, and about the United Kingdom, maybe, but uh, certainly uh, in the United States. And so then the question becomes, What's been done? Well, certainly it's been studied. Uh, it's hard to imagine that all of this sort of uh, material would have gone into a black hole and not be studied very seriously by classified projects, including the biologicals. Well, sure, uh, we, we probably studied it, but the question is whether or not those studies can actually derive any definitive statements. And in the case of looking at something back in the in the 40s, it's hard for us to conceive of how scientists who potentially retrieved down craft in the 40s, could make a determination that what they were looking at was of interstellar nature versus interdimensional nature. I think that that is a, a very hard thing to tie down. But I think it's I also... Think really, I think it's the same thing. I think if it's interstellar, it has to be interdimensional. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you on that point. I've made that point on the show before. No, you're not going <laughs> to go through uh, interstellar distances at subluminal velocities, and when you go no. through no. what I call the crossing point of light, you're crossing into what many would call other dimensions, and I think that is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely, and we've actually had arguments with Stanton Friedman about just that topic, stating to him that by definition, if you're moving between star systems of any significant distance, you have to be interdimensional, otherwise there's no way you can get there. I think we're, we're absolutely agreement about that. Now, going back for a moment, though, to your statement about the UN meeting, the reported UFO meeting on February 
February 12th. I think it's really critical when we talk about things in this field to be specific about sourcing. And in the case of the supposed February 12th meeting, what we have is a story that has gone through being reported by Michael Sala. Uh, no, I'm not he, relying on that at all because that has no, no, a lot no. of inaccuracies in it. <laughs> well, exactly. Where we have the Clay and Sean Pickering getting in touch with Michael Sala saying, oh, we heard from someone else that there was this meeting. At this meeting, they brought up the Stephen Bill and O'Hare cases. Now, those cases are not of an international nature. Those cases are quite specific to the United States. It's hard to imagine that this topic would be brought up at such a conspicuous place as the UN, because quite frankly, if there's one thing we know about the UN, is that things that are discussed in there invariably leak out. Their security sucks. I would think that if there really truly was a meeting at the UN, first of all, you wouldn't have it at the UN. A. B. If you had it at the UN, good chances are that this thing would spill out all over the place. The UN is not a model of efficiency. They just aren't, or secrecy for that matter. They're just not. Right. No, so I agree I th- completely. One of my uh, colleagues, who is a very high-ranking French government official, sent me an article that was actually in mainstream press in France, written by Didi, I'm blocking on the man's name. It's a French, very respected journalist, who was talking directly with members of the French contingent who were at this meeting and confirmed it, and actually refers to the Michael Sala reports as being, he didn't use the word false, but inaccurate and et cetera. Uh, in talking to this French official and then reading the article written by this mainstream journalist, it's quite clear to me the meeting did happen. It's quite clear to me that the UFO issue was only one of a number of things discussed, that one of the things that did happen was that there were American military uh, people at this meeting that presented more of a negative argument for disclosure versus some who were saying that you know, it's time for this to be dealt with more openly. And it's, it's a really quite a well-written article, and I'll try to, to get it to you. It's in French, but I, my colleague did a unprofessional but adequate English translation because I personally mm-hmm. don't read French. Actually, uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée, of course, does speak French, and if memory serves me correctly, uh, Dr. Vallée did follow up on this specific um, uh, French journal and basically this French journalist then essentially pulled back from the whole thing, basically stated that what he had reported on. If I remember correctly, and I'm also, I don't have these notes right in front of me, but I remember at the time reading about this and reading that Jacques Vallée, I think this was on actually the UFO updates uh, listserv, that uh, Jacques Vallée had looked into us and had, I, I believe, if I, and I could very well be wrong about this, Jacques, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but that he had confirmed that this uh, journalist was either taken out of context or essentially backpedaled on the whole thing. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. 
So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Dr. Stephen Greer. The first part focused on the Orion Project, which is connected with the search for low-cost energy resources. So let's talk about the Disclosure Project for a second, Stephen, because um, I watched all that video, and what struck me was that you had the situation where you had some very, very credible witnesses, people like Robert Salas uh, discussing the Maelstrom episode. Highly believable. Obviously, it's a well-documented episode, which has an incredible amount of not only credibility associated with it, but also the implications of it are rather fascinating on many levels. At the same time, you have people like Clifford Stone, who made claims about being in the field and doing reconnaissance of crashed uh, vehicles, about going on record saying that the government had categorized 57 species of extraterrestrial life forms. How do you reconcile those two things? I know that a lot of people who were involved in that original press conference you held felt very upset about the mix of people on the stage. So what would you say to some of those people? What we tried to do was find a representative number of people who had a background in military and who were willing to testify under oath to what they were going to share with the public. Ultimately, you do have to rely on corroboration. And that's why, for example, when John Callahan uh, came forward with the radar tapes from the Alaska uh, case with the Japan Airlines mm-hmm. intercept, you know, it was very important uh, that while he didn't get the CIA and FBI and Reagan science advisor who was there with him at that meeting to come forward, he did have the digital tapes. In the case of Clifford Stone and some of the other witnesses, uh, we felt that they had had enough experience with this that their stories would hold up. Now, you can shoot holes in them if you want to, but our point was to say there are many people, many men and women who've served in an official capacity, and some of them in, in highly classified projects, some of them incidental, as you mentioned, the Robert Salas case and, and, and Maelstrom, where he just happened to be there when this event took place. And what you have to do is look at the weight of the evidence. Uh, now, I'm not saying that there, you know, out of the something like 110 people we initially videotaped and interviewed, that there, all of them would be 100% solid. There's, we don't have the budget to do the background checks, but what we, have, we will stand by is that 
it's a very makes a very solid case. Now, you know, you can talk about one person, Stone. I haven't seen anything that disproves what he says. We would like to seek more corroboration for what he says. And so one of the ways to do that is to put out the accounts and ask for people to come forward who can corroborate it. Uh, but the key point of what we were asking for, remember, and we asked that each person both sign a statement and make the statement publicly in front of the media, that they would testify under oath with the penalties of perjury about what they were about to share. That was a requirement. And actually, there were a number of people that we initially were going to include that we excluded because they wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And then we looked into it and we found out, well, there were a few bad apples there. But that basically had, was the approach to that, and we're still uh, identifying people. I just, in fact, talked to a man this week who um, had uh, flown over to the area of Bimini and had seen an amazing uh, underwater structure uh, and, and craft that was there and had never come forward until, until now. And we continue to find people like that. Uh, and, in fact, there's not a week that goes by that we don't have a new military uh, witness uh, to an event that has information. My point to people is that with the thousands of pages of government documents that there are and all of these people coming forward, there's a very strong case that's been made that the subject is real and warrants disclosure and that the secrecy around it should end. Jeremy, have any questions? Uh, yeah, well, sort of sticking with this same topic, you know how the media works, and you know that they're going to crucify this subject any chance they get. So why would you want to put on the same stage somebody um, who has a background that you can check out with somebody who doesn't? Because it sounds like what you're saying is you sort of throw everything at the wall and you know hope that something sticks and make the case that, that this is real, but the media you know doesn't buy that. So why would you risk that if you want to be taken seriously by the media? Well, first of all, we were taken seriously by the media. And secondly, I, I don't feel like any of the people we put forward can't didn't hold up under or being checked out. I mean, I think that what we're trying to do is say, here are the people we've identified. This is what they're willing to testify to. Let's check out this issue. And, uh, you know, it's not as if we're some funded entity that has a whole group of, of uh, people with the ability to do, you know, uh, amazing amount of research on, on every single case. It doesn't exist. These are all, it was a totally volunteer effort. Our point was, and I think it was well taken, is that where there's smoke, there's fire. Let's get to the root of this and let's disclose this information. Well, maybe I should ask you, when you say that, that you know somebody who worked in a lab, you know, uh, with, you know, UFO technology or something like that, how do you decide which of those stories you believe and which you don't, since none of them are verifiable? Well, in the case of the gentleman I was referring to earlier, he actually had his system running. I went to his lab, which was an off-site facility, and saw it. I then talked to the colonel who funded it, who was ordered to defund it. I am personal friends with the senior scientist in Washington who then replicated this anti-gravity technology and have been in that facility. So I have no doubt at all that that's the case. And so in that case, I'll hang my hat on it, absolutely. And so, you know, to the extent that you can, you try to check out each of these cases. One of the things I heard you say at the X conference was that you have videotape of an alien baby with a four-bone cranium. Is that something you're planning on making public, and why would you not have done it by now? Wouldn't that be the best thing for disclosure, to have that out there? Yes, it really would be. The institute that holds that is in Europe, 
and they're asking us to help uh, do the analysis for it, and it is their call as to when they come out with it. It's not, I do not have control over that project. Um, and I was brought in as a consultant to work with that institute uh, in Europe, and it's a really interesting case. Um, I hope that they get off the dime and bring it all out to the public as soon as possible. And they actually have physical possession of the entity. But see, mm -hmm. but the problem, Stephen, here is that when you say that, by definition, you are disclosing it. And And this is the same problem, by the way, that we have seen in the last couple of weeks with this whole Stan Romanek case, where Stan Romanek gets a person, this guy Jeff Peckman, who then goes on major media stating, I have evidence, except with an audience of millions, this person will not reveal the evidence. Right, this we is, have asked him to do the same thing. I couldn't agree with you more. Right. Uh, in well, this case, uh, you know, when I spoke to Jeff Peckman and, and Rick Nelson in, in Denver, I said, you know, you really need to have an evidence packet, and it needs to all come out uh, and be put out. I shared this at the X conference with a, a relatively small audience just to say this kind of evidence does exist, and we're trying to get this institute to do the right thing. We want to have full genetic karyotype testing and sequencing on this uh, creature. We want to be able to see that it's handled like a true forensic case. Etc. and so on. But ultimately, the ball is in their court on that. And I share that just as, as, as an example of the kind of evidence that does exist, but trying to get people to do the right thing, it's a, you know, this is the sphere of plea, uh, free will. I don't have, I can't hold a gun to their head and say, you have to do this and you have to do it on my timeline. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, cooperative, voluntary association. And if anything, I was brought in as a consultant on it. In the Stan Romanek case, I haven't been able to, in fact, I've been asked in a number of interviews about that, and all I can say is I don't know, because what I've asked is that they release, to the extent fully possible, the entire evidence package and that it be put out there so it can be really scrutinized if they really have this sort of thing. Now, I understand that when they had the press conference, they had the media turn the cameras away because there's some kind of pre-existing, I don't know if it's a business arrangement or, or a production, some kind of contract for, for a documentary so that they couldn't actually even show as much as, as was being displayed there. Right. I think that that is unfortunate. I don't think that's the way to handle it. What we try to do is to the extent we can and to the extent we have permission is to provide as much information and perspective and discuss these implications that we, we are able to. If someone has asked me to maintain a confidence, I can't, I'm not going to violate okay. it. Okay, sure, sure, um, no, no, and, that, that's... And I mean, you know, I mean, you know, everyone may get frustrated by that. I get frustrated by it. Okay. But just as I'm um, frustrated with this uh, ruminant case, where I really think that, that the whole, of, uh, you know, the full Monty ought to happen there, where, where everything's put out there to be looked at. But then again, they have their plans and and they control right. that. Right, and actually the Paracast is the one organization that has uncovered the name of the person who is holding all the cards in the Romanek case, and one Clay Roberts, um, who is highly protective of any of this information and who will not reveal any of the scientists supposedly looking at this, even though, you know, I'm just a small town image processing expert, but I went and I found all of the information that pointed to where all of the scientists were and the absolute car crash of the situation, which I uncovered and reported on the Paracast, would indicate that there's very little of any credible uh, or any credibility to the Romanek case. I actually did chase down all of the behind-the-scenes people. Now, let's address 
your frustration. There is certainly the reality that you um, have to uh, respect confidentiality agreements and people's desire to uh, hold their cards close to their chest. On the other hand, you have an organization called CSETI, where uh, it has been stated that you have a tremendous amount of photographic and video evidence. Certainly, you have the ability of releasing any and all of that information. Why has this not happened? Well, the accounts of it are on CSETI.org, and we're actually going to be coming out with a, a collection of the evidence and cases and experiences we've had this fall. So that's what we're working to put together. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the that's news at the and don't forget to check out our website at the where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast, we're talking with... Dr. Stephen Greer, we talked earlier about the Orion Project. Now we're talking about the Disclosure Project, and we're getting into CSETI, and we're being joined this week also by Jeremy Vaney. Jeremy, David, which one of you wants to pick this up? Go, Jeremy. Well, I, I kind of want to go back to the alien baby for a second. Do we know any background information on how we came into possession of this alien baby or, or this European nation did? It's not a nation that has it. It's an institute, a private uh, research institute in a European nation that has it. Um, it was retrieved from a remote area of, of uh, South America in a, in a desert area. I understand from, from what they have told me is that there was an apparent Star Wars type uh, electromagnetic or, or weapon system that hit one of these relatively small egg-shaped uh, ET craft that went down in the Andean region and then uh, crashed uh, some of it in, in an area not all of it apparently was retrieved. There were some villagers that found this small uh, creature and didn't know what to make of it, wrapped it in uh, some cloth, put it on the steps of a church, and that's where it was left and then found, and then it uh, made its way to these folks in, in Europe. I understand that there's probably more debris and material where this came from. Uh, I've suggested that there be an expedition to look into that. So far they haven't committed to do it. 
uh, maybe a lack of funding. I don't know why. But that's pretty much as much as I know about it. The, the video and photographs of the creature are pretty amazing, frankly. And again, if it's a hoax, it's an amazing one. And I hope the next time I'm in Europe, I'll be able to go over there and actually see the physical specimen I've been in. But no aliens have come back for it and to rescue it or anything like that, right? Well, it's dead. I mean, it's a, it's, it's yeah. a desiccated skeletal. There's some fascia and connective tissue, cartilage, and, and a skeletal remain. It's not a, a creature running around yakking. I mean, it's not living. So, I mean, they, they wouldn't come back for that. For a moment, we'll avoid the issue of why there would be an infant alien entity on a craft. Um, unless you are going to sort of uh, assume that we have alien families traveling around for vacation purposes. That, that makes absolutely no sense at all. Well, well it doesn't make course, any sense unless there's some right. project uh, that we don't know about. I mean, you get into the realm of speculation here, and uh, you can speculate all you want, but nobody's going to be able to answer that question for you. Well, so far, any discussion of this topic outside of things like witness testimony and, and I think it's important to qualify this, Stephen, that my personal interest in this topic comes from a number of personal experiences witnessing these craft. Okay? I'm not someone who's interested in... I started in when I was eight. I got, that's how I got interested. Yeah. Well, at the same time, of course, I also recognize that the times that I had my experiences, a number of them with very large groups of people, the sensation, of course, went from... Uh, beginning fascination to rather serious fear, and I would qualify that as a rational, healthy reaction to an unexplained phenomenon of this type. I, I want to get back to the C-SETI thing for a moment. Um, it, I find it interesting, and I'll use that as a euphemism for disturbing, that um, in looking over the paperwork for attending the C-SETI uh, events, one of the, the vectoring events, and by the way, if you remember, the very first time we had you on the show, I told you that I was very interested in attending one of these uh, events, coming with some real camera equipment. Because obviously, Stephen, if you want to convince people that this is an important topic, and, and that's why we do the Paracast, it's to convince people that this is a serious topic and that it, it merits everyone's consideration because this is not minor stuff. This is an incredibly important and interesting. At the same time, if you have the opportunity to gather Evidence, And I'm not going to say that photographic evidence is solid. Photographic evidence is only compelling when accompanied by credible witness testimony. Underscore the word credible. What I have to ask you in looking over the... First of all, I offered to come to one of these things. You said you'd follow up, but you didn't. Let's forget about that now because that's water under the bridge. Let's talk about the fact that in looking over the paperwork, there is a very disturbing page that talks about uh, signing a non-disclosure, that if I'm on one of your events to Vector and Craft, that I have to sign away my right to be able to discuss what I saw, to be able to show photographic evidence if I capture it, that essentially your organization maintains control over that. Please explain to us how that's well, just... You make it sound like some good conspiracy. The purpose for that is that people come to these and they share a lot of their personal experiences, or they may have an experience out in the field, uh, whether it's with remote viewing or with some a really anomalous sort of experience. What we don't want people to do is to come to that and then put out on the Internet someone else's information that they don't want to have. So the idea is that people can share openly 
and it is a training process. This is a training for, for people who want to understand contact and want to understand the modalities in which we think it's most likely that people are going to be able to make open contact, which involve consciousness, thought, remote viewing, a lot of things that are very controversial. And it gets into areas that people will share things that they really don't want to have. So that, I, I, I fully that understand. confidentiality, yeah. is, that's the purpose of that. No and, problem. Um, but your paperwork deals specifically, specifically with footage of anomalous entities and or UFOs. As someone who is a recognized image analyst, as someone who is part of the key team that contributed to the NARCAP report on the O'Hare incident, as someone who has done work for people like George Knapp in analyzing images and analyzing video evidence, I am talking exclusively about photographic and video evidence of UFOs or other anomalous unidentified aerial phenomenon. Your paperwork specifically states that if I go to one of your events and if I capture something of that nature that I cannot share it, that I essentially can't show it to anybody without your permission. I'm not talking about people's private stories. That's obvious why you would not want to share that. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about, okay, I'm out on an event with you. I have a really good three-chip high-def camera. We see something, I videotape it. You're telling me that I cannot share that information with anybody. I fail to see how you can justify that. Well, the idea is that it would be a consensus decision by the group that we would want to share it before and when and to whom. Uh, for example, we, we had, it's just great to back this up all the way back to, to Florida in 92, where we took a team out and did this, and there was an, a, a very significant event that happened near Pensacola. There were people there with cameras. They took pictures of it. They then copyrighted it, tried to sell it, wouldn't let us use it. To this day, we don't use it in the materials that we show people. And so they used the contact event to do something that actually took the evidence and made it so it couldn't be put out there. And that is one example. So the idea is that if people are there as a team doing this, that it should be able to be shared with the team so that it could then go through a process to see if it's worthwhile or not and put it out to the public. But that doesn't always happen, and that's the purpose of that. It's real simple, Stephen. You make it mutually non-exclusive, and then anybody can do what they want with it, and no one's hands are tied. Jeremy? I'm confused as to why you think uh, that's not this... not how the copyright work, laws work in the United States, by the way, what you just said. Uh, the copyright laws can be uh, specifically addressed with legal agreements that are on a contract-by-contract contract basis. I've actually negotiated a number of, of uh, contracts for writers. Well, that would be a good process. one to use. Maybe you could send us a copy of that and we'll replace it with this form that you're complaining about. Anyway. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm complaining about it because I think it's a legitimate concern. Please, Jeremy. I'm just I'm confused about uh, going out into the woods to vector these craft in in the first place. Why you would think that that's sort of the future of how we're going to do this? When in your own youth, you you sort of had you know open contact with these beings, did you not? What happened between your youth and now, where where now you're you know flashing lights in the sky and all that, and not just sitting down and talking to them anymore? Well, it's, the question is uh, has 18 errors in it. First of all, contact can be ongoing personally. I think what has has happened is that the idea evolved that perhaps we should do this as a group and as a group then model this so that 
it becomes something instead of it happening idiosyncratically and one-on-one, it begins to occur with groups of people and model that as sort of a citizen's diplomatic effort for eventually our whole planet saying maybe it's time that instead of just denying these visitors are here or shooting them down with weapon systems, we should start some type of a planetary contact effort. And so this is sort of an experiment to do that on a citizen's diplomacy effort. Not an either-or question. The fact that we're doing this does not preclude that an individual may have personal contact. Well, let me ask you a question here, Dr. Griff. Do you have a feeling where you think these UFOs are coming from? One place, multiple sources, what? Uh, Yes, I think they're probably coming from multiple sources. I think they work together. Uh, I don't think there's some sort of a cowboys and Indians in space of ETs from their various star systems all just kind of damming around out there in an uncoordinated fashion. My assessment of it is that it's very coordinated and it's a long-term project. I don't think this is something that's a recent phenomenon. I think it goes back thousands of years, uh, maybe to the dawn of human history. And uh, frankly, I, I think that we're at this really pivotal point in our history where uh, it, it's time for us as a civilization to acknowledge that we're not alone and figure out a coherent way to make contact with these visitors and do so in such a way that it is uh, peaceful and isn't militarized. And this has been, I think, the big problem of the last 50 years. Well, let me ask you a question, though. If these creatures, beings, whatever, have been here for thousands of years, they would be so far in advance of us, they would hold the cards. They could determine when and how to communicate with us. So if we want to communicate with them, they don't have to answer unless they want to. That's correct. They don't have to unless they want to. But I think that they are wanting to if it's approached within a paradigm of open and peaceful contact as opposed to a a militarized effort. And I think this is exactly what's been been lacking in the last 50 or 60 years of the modern era of this. Well, what about the older year? What about before then? What about 100 years ago before we had this technology? Wouldn't that situation have been such that no matter what we did, we couldn't harm them? Now you're saying we actually can harm them, that we can shoot them down. If they're that advanced, how do our weapons have any effect on them, whatever? Well, as you know, there are so-called longitudinal, some call them scalar type of weapons that have been developed that have have a very uh, deleterious effect on the guidance and electronics of these systems. Um, it's my personal opinion that the so-called Roswell event was an electromagnetic targeting. Uh, there's an FBI document uh, that states that there were special new radar installations near Roswell. Uh, there had been sightings before this happened. And I think it was switched on, and it caused two of these craft to, to lose control and collide with each other. Wouldn't they, I think being so advanced, be able to... the civilization is very advanced, that it's infallible. I think, that, you know, people try to ascribe to a more advanced technology infallibility, which I think is, is really a red herring, because it's, it's almost like if you were to have fly over primitive tribes in the Amazon with a 747, they would think, oh, this is a godlike, it's like the cargo cults of World War II. There's a godlike thing, and that it could never crash. Well, they 747s do crash, by the way. They don't and crash. So the fact they, that you have a very advanced system of civilization doesn't mean that there's infallibility and, and perfection. And I think the other part of the equation that isn't looked at is what kind of really advanced energy weapon systems, electromagnetic weapon systems, have evolved in the last 60 years in classified projects 
Uh, and I think that, that this is an area that has to be of some concern. Uh, I don't believe, I mean, and this is where the skeptics are quite right, I don't think you travel through interstellar slash interdimensional space and, gee, you lose your way over the desert in Roswell and, and crash in the desert after traveling umpteen light years. Something else was going on. And I think that, that it's not rational to think that this was sort of, uh, gee, they ran out of what, Exxon Jet A fuel over uh, Roswell and Socorro? I don't think so. Right. I think that you have to look at this uh, in, in the context of what has been going on within these classified projects and what other agendas might be operating. What we're suggesting is that perhaps it's time for citizens to come together and say, how can, and, you know, and, and the, the, the sort of ridiculing comment that your guest made about showing lights in the sky, it's not the core of our, our protocol at all, but it shows what he hasn't looked into yet. But the point I'm making is that if we're going to talk about how to do this, let's talk about what these civilizations might be using for communication. I don't think they're using electromagnetic signals going at the speed of light because it's too slow. So then they get into the whole, well, what Ron Pendolfi used to call the high strangeness and weirdness stuff at the CIA, where you start dealing with, with technologies that go beyond the crossing point of light and deal with technologies that do interface with thought and that do interstate, interface with consciousness and other energy forms. And it, it gets into some, some weird stuff to some people. I don't, I don't find it particularly weird, but I think that for many people, it's a little bit out there. But I think that's why we're doing this as an experimental training effort to say, what can we do as a people, instead of having just our individual contact that we've all had, to come together and make contact with these visitors within the paradigm of open, peaceful contact. And perhaps if we do that, it will begin to set up, as Sheldrake might describe, the morphogenic field. So in the future, there would be official open contact as opposed to clandestine contact. And instead of denying the subject, would openly acknowledge it and, and make a, a, a peaceful contact with these visitors. I but think why would you need to do that in the first place? For. You know, you asked the question of in, in the 1800s or oh. before they were around. <laughs> I think perhaps they're waiting for humanity to reach this pivotal point where we are emerging as a global civilization with the communications capabilities and technologies to be a functioning planet. And that a peaceful approach to these issues is perhaps the indication that we're ready for open contact. I think that people are always saying, why don't they do X, Y, and Z? Whereas I would rather say, why don't humans do X, Y, and Z? Why don't we take responsibility for our own planet and for our own contact? But Dr. Yes. Greer, if, if you personally have open contact with them, isn't it just a matter of asking them to just come and, and have open contact with, with the people that you choose? Well, no, I, I would seriously doubt that these these uh, civilizations at this level are puppets on anyone's string. Certainly not mine, and certainly not yours. I well, think not this a puppet, is a, but it's a just it's simple that if I know if, if I have a neighbor that I want to have over to dinner, I ask him over to dinner. I don't, you know, if I know him and I'm friends with him, I ask him over to dinner. I don't uh, construct, uh, you know, flashing lights and and remote viewing and all of this to sort of make him comfy cozy. I just ask him. Why have you ever just asked them to come out and? Have open contact? That's what we do as a group. And whether or not they appear, it's, are, are there factors that are beyond 
what we can control. All we can do is set the stage and prepare ourselves for this sort of contact and then see what happens. Uh, I don't think it, I think it's simplistic to say, well, we're going to invite them over like we're having bagels and locks out on our deck or something. I think this is not how it's going to happen. The other thing that we have found, which is interesting, and we have a group in, in Australia that's done this, and, and a, a woman who uh, she accidentally was uh, imaging something that she sensed was nearby, and she used an ultraviolet, the spectrum on her digital camera, with the flash, and this craft was there that she could not see with her naked eye, but that is very, very clear in, in the image that she took with the, when the flash went off. Uh, now the question then becomes, is it that oftentimes these objects are around and they're not seen? When are they, quote, and unquote, materialized in our space-time continuum as opposed to shifted dimensionally where you wouldn't be able to see them at all? There are a whole lot of issues here. And, and, there, and then the question is, how do we image them? And, I, I, you know, this, this is something of, of some concern because I don't know that they're always going to appear like a Steven Spielberg movie. And, and then the question becomes, how do we develop the means to sort of meet them part way into their reality and their understanding of science and technology and consciousness and, and all of those issues. What we do need is three things. When a 747 flies over an aboriginal tribe, the 747 is not brought down by their bows and arrows. That's A. B, the new radar systems, the esoteric radar systems that were at Roswell, they were the first radar systems. These were not any sort of special technology. It's open public record that those were, now it's open public record, that those were the first radar systems. And the most important thing, three, Stephen, is that any advanced civilization that does any due diligence on this planet and its history, especially its history in the last hundred years, would have to be high to think that we are ready for any kind of serious interplanetary discussion of any sort. I contend that that is absolutely patently ridiculous that any extraterrestrial species would approach us vaguely as peers if these creatures are able to move between stars and given the age of homo sapiens which is what a hundred thousand years any species is going to easily be hundreds of thousands if not millions if not a billion years ahead of us the idea the idea that's correct right the idea that those creatures at that level of intellectual evolution could approach us as peers, could look at us as anything but violent little monkeys is absolutely well, preposterous. It's preposterous. Well, I, no, I think that's one aspect of humanity, but perhaps they see another. Perhaps they see time changing in terms of the, the time frames collapsing for contact. Perhaps there's preparation going on. You know, you're making sweeping and categorical statements. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that as if you're inside the all-knowing mind of, of God or something. What I would say is that if they're here and there's the possibility that we could try to move in the direction of some sort of more peaceful and open contact, let's see what happens. At least it's doing something besides 
weaponizing and militarizing the relationship oh, absolutely. or denying it. But so, no you know, everyone can ridicule it all they want, and you can say that it's ridiculous that they would want to make contact with us, but the fact of the matter is they are making contact with us. And perhaps they see that in 2008, that as geological time goes or astronomical time goes, we're really a few seconds away from being able to develop as a, a peaceful world civilization that is ready and worthy of making open contact with them. I hold that out as a possibility. Now, perhaps I'm overly optimistic, but I think that that is a possibility. And I think it's a possibility that unless we move in that direction and explore it, we're never going to know. And so that's all I would say is that this is the time where perhaps we should exploring those good futures as opposed to only the apocalyptic ones and only the ones that would say that they have to view all of humanity and all of its promise in the future as a bunch of murderous monkeys running around. I think that we can do better than that. And I think we need to show a face of humanity to them that says that we're willing to try to move in that direction. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, I'm Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker with the blog The Other Side of Truth, and you're listening to the Paracast with my pals David Biedney and Gene Steinberg. We're talking the final section of the Paracast with Dr. Stephen Greer of the Orion Project, the Disclosure Project, CSETI. Joining us, Jeremy Vaney. We have a short amount of time left, a lot of ground to cover, and Jeremy, you had a few more questions to ask? Well, I just, again, I don't know how much clearer I need to make this, but if, if I have open contact and I'm speaking English to an alien, uh, then I don't need all the rigmarole of any of this other stuff, do I? I, I guess I just am not getting that. If you, in your life, have already well, had open contact... Well, why don't you go and do it? If you don't, go do it. Show it. I mean, that'd be great. No, no, no. I'm saying you have had this open contact, so why do you need to create open contact through other means? You You have open contact. You can get all the, the answers. Idea, the idea is to move it from individual and idiosyncratic to a, a, a group and then to society in a larger way. But I think the progression we're on is one of many people, and I don't know how many people on this planet may have had contact of some sort with these visitors. It's a pretty significant number, I suspect. And I think that to go from that to it being people working in groups is an exponential order of magnitude jump in functionality and then to go from that to our society as a whole and I think that's the trajectory that we 
need to be moving towards. It isn't an either-or discussion. People are going to continue to have individual contact. But I think that there is something added here when groups of people work together to try to figure out how might it look and what might we need to do to function coherently as a group to make it make peaceful contact with these visitors. And that's the idea of the CE5 initiative, the Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind initiative. Now, a lot of people think, well, you know, don't bother. But I think it's worth bothering because I think that at some point we're going to need to go from personal contact and private encounters and things that might happen on other dimensions with ourselves individually into groups of people and perhaps our entire society doing this within some sort of construct of peace, universal peace, not just world peace. And I think we need to look at our civilization as moving in that direction because there's really no future if we take this into the direction of just military conflict into space, which is, of course, I mean, as you know, Douglas MacArthur said, you know, the, the next World War War III will be interplanetary. There are a lot of people who fantasize about this grand, almost scientological, eschatological final battle in space somewhere. And I, I think that, that what we need to say is that, well, perhaps there's an alternative future. Maybe there's a future where humans can evolve as a group, as an entire species, into a state of, of behaving peacefully and then go into space with these visitors peacefully. And I think perhaps that's what they're waiting for. Perhaps all the enigmatic ways that they've appeared is that they're biding their time waiting for us to make that quantum leap into a sustainable and peaceful future. That's What's what your... I personally believe. Right. Now, What's... I may be wrong. May, you know, I, I may be completely wrong. And, oh. you know, there are people who are addicted to paradigms of conflict and seeing humanity as eternally being a bunch of murderous yeah. monkeys with, with spears running around. And, I mean, if people want to view humanity and its promise in that way, that's they're right. I have a right to view it in yeah. another way. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the perspective that we bring to this. And some people like it. Some people don't. It's a free what world. About, believe what, what about, you want. <laughs> right, right. Stephen, what about all of the people, credible people who report encounters with these beings that are something less than benevolent, uh, being taken against their will, having things pulled off their bodies, pulled out of their bodies, are these people undergoing some sort of consensual hallucination? It, there could be a number of things going on. As you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, evidence that's been put together dealing with the uh, MyLab phenomenon, the military abduction, simulating contact for its psychological warfare value. There may mm -hmm. be other people who've had contact where the contact frightened them, but it doesn't necessarily speak to the agenda behind the fear. Now, you know, one of the analogies I use, because, you know, being an emergency doctor, I mean, you can imagine the terror in a two-year-old when I have to do a spinal tap to uh, examine the cerebral spinal fluid to see if they have meningitis. I'm coming sure. at them with a needle that's like six inches long. Well, sure. to, to that child, to, well, let me finish. Don't interrupt me. To that child, I look like, you know, some horrible, monstrous person that's hurting them because you're not putting, doing this under general anesthesia, okay? And I know that there are many procedures I had in the emergency department where people were fully awake. Now, it, I was there to help them, but the perception would have been, oh, my God. And, of course, it would take three nurses to hold the two-year-old still. So I think that we have to be careful about this sort of a facile assumption of how people react to things happening that are not yet fully understood and ascribing to that to some grand sinister agenda that would justify 
Star Wars or something. And I think what's happened in ufology is that everything has been looked at in that way, and we've clicked into this mindset, the sort of uh, fight-or-flight fear response uh, that's overridden our ability to really look at this and see what might be happening and what's behind uh, a lot of the experiences. And I think we have to be very careful with that because uh, ultimately, if we're not careful with it, we're going to make the same mistake we made uh, in bumbling into Iraq or the, the hundreds of years of conflict over one race, intertribal warfare. I think that we have to begin to look at this differently. So, you know, you could come out with all kinds of examples of things. Well, I know someone, uh, personally, a friend of mine, who just had one of these large, sort of triangular, roughly triangular, almost like a manta ray shaped thing, float over. And there were some electromagnetic effects on the, in the car. And, and this man was in stark, raving terror. Now, he wasn't hurt, but now is his fear an indication that these creatures were there to kill him or something? No. So we have to separate our response to something we experience and what might be the reason for their being there or doing any specific action. I think those are two separate things, and I think that there has been a very facile tendency, a very... Uh, a quick tendency to jump into these uh, uh, theories of alien agendas that are very terrifying, and I don't think it, it, it's actually uh, at all based in, in the truth. Uh, I, I don't see that there's really any concern uh, there. I think the real concern is perhaps what they have with humanity being a source or a threat long term if we stay on the path that we're on uh, to other places in the universe. Because if we if we do have technologies that are beginning to understand interstellar slash interdimensional energy systems and teleportation and what have you. Uh, and we still have this mindset of uh, us versus them, let's kill anything we don't understand, which has been the modus operandi of humanity for thousands of years. Perhaps we're viewed as, as the threat. Perhaps we're the scary ones. And, you know, I just flip it around and say, take a look at it the other way. <laughs> hey, Dr. Greer, I know we haven't got much time left. So for those who want to know more about what happens with the Disclosure Project, where do they go? Our updates are at uh, www.disclosureproject.org. And the Energy Research Initiative is at www.theorionproject.org. Any public appearances coming up that you might want to mention? I will actually be speaking in Denver uh, on July 9th at the, uh, and that information is at disclosureproject.org. We will be presenting some of the witness testimony and we will also be uh, discussing some of the initiatives that are, that are underway. As you know, the ballot initiative in, in Denver and some other things. So we'll be doing a presentation there on the Wednesday, the 9th of July. And final question, do you have any predictions to make as to when real final disclosure might happen? Uh, well, I think you'd have to define real final disclosure. If you're talking about the governments of the world uh, getting organized and out of their own way to do it, who knows? I think the real disclosure is going to happen by us, we the people, collecting the information, educating each other, uh, and uh, making open contact. And, and, and I've always felt that if the people will lead, uh, perhaps the leaders will follow. Dr. Stephen Greer, thank you so much for joining us on the thank PowerCast. You. And don't go away. The PowerCast will be back in a moment. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, 
lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwoods. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, we always do the two-hour show, except right. for one special episode, That's which was right. rather far out. But we thought that because of the nature of this episode ah, and because yes. of what happened... Ah, yes. It was necessary to have a special wrap, an extra added attraction with it's, myself, it's David, and Jeremy. And David right now is hot under the collar. His face is turning red. And he's 2,500 miles away, and I see his face uh, turning red. David, what's going on? Well, see, what I really wanted to ask Stephen about was this really fascinating article I found on the Internet Lord, do I loves me the Internet. I love the Internet. There's so much cool stuff. For example, you can go and do a search for, ready for this? Here, folks. In fact, I'll tell you what. Instead of making a search for a gene, let's do something special this week. You know how when you put the uh, guest's name on and it links over to their website, right? You know how we do that? <laughs> We're going to do something a little different this week, Gene. What we'll do this week, instead of linking over to Dr. Greer's propaganda sites, what we'll do instead is we'll link over to a great article I found on the Internet. Did I mention that I loves me the Internet? I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it to death. Because there is an article that I found after doing quite a bit of searching, because I heard about this from another buddy of ours who shall remain unnamed, because, you know, all of the people we bring up are unnamed, unlike... Dr. Projection Stephen Greer, who had the audacity, oh, oh, that person, if he exists, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Meanwhile, you won't mention a single frickin' name of a single frickin' person, including the scientists you supposedly have related to your Orion project, which is a load of crap. Meanwhile, we can go online and we can find an article from Outside Magazine published in September 1994 entitled Alien Brothers Come On Down. And this was written by a guy by the name of Alex Hurd who paid the money to go on a C-SETI vectoring camping trip and reports the most fascinating stuff to us. The stuff that Stephen Greer will not talk about. What really goes on at those camping expeditions? What's his real background? A little bit about what motivates Dr. Greer. A little bit about how he behaves. And, you know, um, it's funny, it's fascinating to listen to him during a radio interview like the one we just did where he's on such good behavior. Except for, of course, when he's saying things like facile. Boy, the five-buck words are just a-flying. 
when you talk also, to Also, if you challenge him and he gets into a groove and you interrupt him for any reason, he yeah. snaps at you. Oh, like a pretzel on a hot July day in New York City. He sure City. does. He sure does. And occasionally yeah. when you say things, if he doesn't have an answer, he might even dispute your honesty. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I didn't like, I didn't like that. Who else do we know that does that? Mm, let's see. I hear a one-armed bandit in Switzerland. Yeah, anyway, this article that I found is most fascinating, where we find that back in 94, in 1994, he was living with his family in a 22-room Tudor-style mansion in one of Asheville's most exclusive subdivisions, Biltmore Forest. He was actually selling it at the time. He had another home he was selling, another home, at the time, for $398,000. This is in 1994, mind you before the real estate bubble. The house, uh, the 22-style mansion, he was trying to sell for $700,000 in 1994. I love this line. He also draws rent from the Asheville's office structure that houses C-SETI's international headquarters. He's paying himself rent from the money he gets donated. You know, well, there's a whole bunch of really great stuff in this article. Uh, let me read another little thing. Uh, whether all the scurrying amounts to much is an open question, but in one memo to C-SETI executive council members, Greer argues for the affirmative. Well, I won't even want to go into that. So we have uh, last February, there's this guy, what's his name? Uh, Williams, Williams. Well, you can read the article. He talks about how uh, Greer got this guy, Frederick Smith, who was giving Greer money to write him a check uh, for $11,000. And then Stephen Greer tells this guy, Williams, oh, don't tell anybody about it. Because he always tells people that there isn't any money to pay them. I found out later that Smith had also written Steve a $5,000 check for his personal use. You know, this is like really dirty stuff. And to have Greer come on here and to question anybody's credibility at this point, when he spouts the most incredible stuff, what I was going to say before was his behavior on this interview versus what Jeremy and I witnessed at the X conference the year before last where he basically got up on stage and did a hometown revival. And I know Jeremy loves to ape that on his show, and he loves to play around with the way we heard Stephen Greer speak that night, which is a whole different Greer. I mean, actually, a psychologist might say that we're dealing with, you know, like a couple of different personalities at once. But I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a small-town image processing expert. <laughs> Yeah, I like how you I mean, snuck that in there. That was good. Yeah, did you like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like, this guy has the audacity, the audacity to tell an audience that Marilyn Monroe was executed because the Kennedys were about to tell her what they knew about UFOs. Man, for two <laughs> hours, I held myself in. I was on best behavior. But Jesus H. Christ, come on, come on. Don't project your crap on us, Greer. Oh, well, if that person really exists, I contend, Greer, that most of the people that you talk about are fabricated. You are making stuff up. You don't have any video or any stills of an alien baby that was left on a stoop. What do you think, Jeremy? <laughs> well, ah! it was easy for me to be on best behavior because I was so just completely pissed off listening to him, especially that next hour that I was just sitting here broiling over. And I really, I, at one point, I was almost tempted to say, you know what, I have no questions for this guy. And this guy is not doing anyone a service. He is a blight on the UFO field. He has been discredited by any number of people. Again, 
this outside magazine article, oh so telling. Tells you so much about the man that he'll never tell you himself. It does not paint a pretty portrait, let's put it that way. And we will be linking to it from the Paracast website so that people can see what really goes on at those vectoring sessions. I asked them about photographic and video evidence. Oh yeah, we're going to be releasing that this fall. There'll be no release from them because they know if they try to release the nonsense they have. In fact, let's qualify this. For a little while, there were some images up on the C-SETI website of what they had captured. Oh, look, the UFOs we vectored in were basically the uh, rods. They were mosquitoes shot at close proximity. Oh, look, they're alien beings. Look, they're mosquitoes. They got nothing. They took that stuff off their website when people started saying, oh, yeah, it looks just like Jose Escamilla's rods. The field is absolutely overrun with these people, and Greer is trying to use the credibility of the few credible people that got up on that stage with him to basically propel himself forward. He's got his his meditation CD you can buy. He's got the arrow on one hand, and he's got uh, the Orion Project on the other hand. Excuse me, I asked about the credentials of the people on those sites, his officers. And, yeah, it's the woman who apparently has given him money. That's one of the people. There's a good credential in order to be on the, the board of directors of your nonsensical organizations. And then a guy who is about as qualified as Jeff Peckman to discuss engineering issues. Let's remember Jeff Peckman, the Romanek guy whose grand claim to fame is his Metatron Harmonizer. I mean, what the hell is this? Metatron Harmonizer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's as if you, you know, you, you peel away any of the layers of these people and what you find is nonsense. You find nonsense. You find people who are glomming onto this in order to try to get, I think in Greer's case, it wasn't about money. I think in his case, he wants to be the center of attention. And Jeremy, as you and I both know, when we saw him at that X conference, this is where the guy was enjoying his life up on the stage, spouting crap to a loving audience ready to lap every bit of it up and be the center of attention and be a rock star up on the stage. For a lot of people, recognition is a lot more important than money. And it's pretty clear to me that in, in this guy's case, that's exactly what's going on. Except, well, yeah. you know, he's pulling in money where he can to fund his lifestyle. Especially when you come from the abusive background that he says he comes from. That part, I'll give him. He had horrible parents that, you know, he had to leave home as a teenager. Well, what's the result of that, do you think? <laughs> what do you have to do See, with did, your life? I didn't, I didn't know that about him. Is that yeah. in his book? Really? Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, it's very easy to make a, a psychological sort of a, a rap sheet on this guy, you know, what he's about. But I, I think the whole disclosure movement... What it's about generally, I think just from going to the X-Conference and seeing all these various people and listening to them talk about, you know, 57 alien species, Galactic Federation, all that stuff, for which they have no evidence, you know, that's credible. All I see are a bunch of incredibly liberal people whose mindsets have moved beyond global, but they're stuck in what is essentially a nationalistic world going toward global. And because they're stuck here, <laughs> they're inventing a way out, which is now we're part of the galaxy. Maybe they want to leave this planet, and they want these aliens to pick them up and save them from their miserable lives. You know, our lives are not what we want them to be. We're not out among the stars exploring the galaxy, exploring new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before. They can't do that, so they have to invent a way. Is that what we're saying here? Yeah, essentially they've got to make up the aliens until the aliens finally show up. 
And then the problem is if the aliens do show up, or when they show up, they may say, that's not us. We don't do that sort of thing. Of course, they won't speak quite in that way. The more highfalutin language will be used by the aliens, we think, unless, of course, they jive. Well, it's you know what's interesting, and I just thought of this just now this second, is uh, this alien baby, you know, they're trying to make these aliens, well, first they're trying to make aliens, right? <laughs> so we've got aliens, and these aliens are human enough uh, that they're compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. Could you imagine being a compassionate mother and leaving your alien baby that that has blown up or even, you know, whatever, the neighborhood that this kid grew up in? That story makes no sense. Yeah, a crack went down, an alien baby's retrieved and left on the steps of a church. Okay, so I guess everybody else in the craft died and only the baby was left. I guess the baby was dead, too. They didn't find the bodies, but they found the baby because somehow the baby got ejected very far away from the rest of the, the, the crash artifact. And then they wrapped it up. I mean, I'm sure they swathed it in a beautiful little Andean blanket, you know, with all the nice colors, and put it on the, on the steps of the church. And somehow it got from the steps of the church in South America, some unspecified country. It got all the way to Europe, because, you know, it's not like that South American country would, you know, want to keep a hold of the evidence. No, they sent it off to, to Europe, where now it's under wraps, and he has seen video, and he has seen pictures. He's making it up. That's the deal. And let him scream from the rooftops. You know, the fact that he started to attack me based on my statement that humans are violent monkeys. He doesn't want to deal with it. I don't like dealing with it either. I don't like living in a world where I know that there is extreme violence around me. I don't get off on this. I would really like it to be the world that John Lennon describes in the song Imagine. I really would. But at the same time, I don't have my head up my ass. I know what reality is, and I know enough to look around the world and see that human beings are violent. And there are exceptions to this, absolutely, but we are a violent species. Now, anybody who doesn't get that part of reality is delusional. And again, there's nothing wrong about wanting to evolve beyond that. I'm totally for that. This is something that I feel so strongly about. At the same time, when you see people like this co-oping that idea and turning it into a money-making and publicity-generating vehicle for them to massage their own oversized egos, my God, this just makes me think that if there are creatures looking down at us, and I suspect there are, you know, are they uh, from another planet? Are they from another dimensional reality? Do they live inside of our planet? Any, all, all of the above. The idea that they're going to look at us and somehow think that we are worthy of being treated as peers, you, you have to be high to believe that. It's delusional. Next week, we have Stanton Friedman, who is going to provide information about his book, Flying Saucers in Science. Hopefully, it'll be a little more grounded than this was. We'll find out next week on the paracast the paracast with gene steinberg and david bietney is a production of making the impossible incorporated join us next week for a new adventure in the paracast